invite you to open up to 2 Corinthians 8, verses 16 through 24, and ask you to read along silently as I read aloud, if you would, please. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So this morning we'll examine four God-glorifying qualities among thankful, trustworthy Christians so that we will glorify God in our loving, generous giving. As you know, here in verse 16... Paul says, thanks be to God. And so whether you see that in the passage that you're dealing with or not, this is the heart attitude of the Christian. It's one of gratitude. It is one that acknowledges that all good things come from God. All that we have is his. We're stewards. Really, we're managers. We're to manage what is his, and we're to do it with integrity. But in particular, when you see the command or when you see the expression of gratitude, that should grab your attention. Here where Paul is calling us to deal with trustworthiness regarding giving, regarding the management of gifts, He starts by saying, thanks be to God. Now, why? What's he calling the Corinthians to be thankful for? It's the integrity of a leader. Integrity to which they can testify. Why? Because they know him. His name is Titus. One of my dearest friends named his son Titus. Wouldn't it be great if the legacy of this man, Titus, as known to the Corinthians as a man who is trustworthy, would be the legacy that that little boy follows into his adulthood? Point number one in our effort this morning, I want you to see the sincere care of Titus for the Corinthians. This is what Paul is calling attention to. He calls it, in uh, your English Standard Version, earnestness, earnest 
care. What does the word earnest mean? We spent some time on that in our last sermon in 2 Corinthians 8. It really means sincere. It means eager. It's heartfelt. It's genuine. There is a sincere care in the heart of Titus toward the people of Corinth to which they would testify as Paul has testified they would. The passage says, thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. And as you know, if there was any church, there were several, but if there was any church that would testify to Paul's loving heart attitude toward them, it was the church of Corinth. Now, there were false teachers that attempted to undermine that. They attempted to persuade the Corinthians to believe that Paul was a shyster. But Paul spent an entire chapter, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, dealing with his credibility. If you want to know, Paul was yet considered to be a man of integrity. It was that treatise in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians where he deals with, you know, come on, remember. You know, don't forget who we have been together. Remember who I am and how I have served you faithfully. Paul wasn't boasting. Paul was pointing out the facts because there were those who were attempting to steal the Corinthians from the spiritual relationship that he had with them, and not for their good. They were lying about Paul. So he says, Titus has that same care. But what's his point? His point is, thank God that Titus has that care, because where did it come from? God put it in Titus's heart. That's what happens in a pastor's heart. God puts care, love, sincere, genuine eagerness for people in the heart of a shepherd. And the people know it. The people know it. Paul further explains this in verse 17 with a qualification. For he not only accepted our appeal. What's the point there? The point is that there was an appeal. Paul went to Titus to say, Titus, deliver this message minister to the Corinthians, go to the Corinthians to get money for poor Christians. Paul says, he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. He wasn't doing it under compulsion. It wasn't Paul's arm twisting that led Titus to go to minister to the Corinthians. It was his own desire. It was as much his idea as it was Paul's. One of the things that the false teachers would have had the Corinthians think and believe about Paul was that he was an abuser of people, that he was a strong arm, which is not an unusual accusation against faithful pastors. His commitment was for them to realize that this wasn't only his idea. Titus is a good man. Titus desires on his own to go to you on his own accord. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5, just a chapter back, Paul says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. As you know, this is the comfort passage. 
And what's it about? It's about the faithfulness of one man, Titus. That Paul himself, that the Corinthians themselves would be comforted. Why? Because of the vehicular use in Titus's life of the message to take back and forth. Paul was comforted. The Corinthians were comforted. Verse 23a in our passage this morning, if you'll skip down to verse 23, he says, As for Titus, he is my partner. He's my fellow worker for your benefit. A pastoral staff, if I can use that terminology, has to be able to say this. And I can. And I'm not just talking about Eric. The 11 men with whom I serve at the Anchor Bible Church in the fundamental leadership panel, the elders, the men who govern and lead the church, I can say about them, they are earnest for your behalf. They desire your better good. They are my partners. They are my fellow workers, and I trust them. They are my partner and my fellow workers for your benefit. Back to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 13, Paul says, And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. This was a mutual comforting experience. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. You proved yourselves to be faithful. Paul goes on to say, but just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. How does that happen? How does a church, a local church, a group of people, very diverse in giftedness, very diverse in personalities, diverse in levels of faithfulness, diverse in levels of maturity, diverse in backgrounds, diverse in many ways. How does a church get to the place where a shepherd can say, I have complete confidence in you? Well, let me start by saying what it's not. It is not an effort to build their self-esteem. Paul is not psychologizing them. He's not saying something that he hopes will be true by speaking of it as if it is true. That's not honest. There is a relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. Some of my interactions recently with a Roman Catholic friend from high school have addressed this matter. He is discouraged because I have addressed the corruption of the Roman Catholic organization and has said to me, how would you respond if I said something similar about the Anchor Bible Church? That's easy. I'd receive it. Prove it. Let's deal with it. Let's address it because that's what we do. We must know one another. Paul knew the Corinthians. The Corinthians knew Paul. 
Paul wasn't saying you're flawless. He wasn't saying you haven't sinned, and he certainly wasn't saying this. He wasn't saying that you have achieved a level of goodness on your own that might prevent the acceptance of others who haven't achieved that level. Paul is saying, my confidence is in you because you reflect what it is to be regenerate. You reflect a repentant spirit. You love unity. Now, who are we talking about here? The Corinthians. What do you think of when you think of Corinthians? They were problems. This is the fourth letter. And by now, Paul is able to commend them. This is much different from 1 Corinthians. It's far different from the severe letter where he really kind of let them have it in love. He didn't regret it. He says, I regret it, but I don't regret it, meaning I regret the sorrow that you experienced, but I don't regret that the sorrow led to repentance, which led to salvation. That's what correction does. I have complete confidence in you. Paul knew them. Paul knew them. Back to chapter 8, verse 6, which we dealt with last time. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. See, Titus has the credibility. Paul can say to the Corinthians, you know me, I know you, I have complete confidence in you. You trust me, I trust you, I trust Titus, you trust Titus. Paul can point to Titus and say to them in verse 7, 2 Corinthians 8, but as you excel in everything, and then he gives a short kind of categorical list, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What act of grace? The act of giving, which, by the way, is a future act. He's not just talking about their previous giving. He's about to talk about their future giving. We urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. And by addressing this, he's calling them to complete their act of grace. Complete what you committed to. Remember, I talked about that pledge card I filled out as a kid. And at the end of the year, I got something back in the mail, you know, with an upside-down unhappy face saying, looks like you didn't meet your whatever goal it was. It wasn't my, I wasn't a Christian. I, you know, I didn't understand any of that. But next week, we'll look at where Paul's headed with this. And that is, as you have decided in your heart, as you've determined in your heart, obviously under the supervision of, of the Lord, doesn't mean that the Lord's telling you what to give. I would encourage you to kind of back away from that mindset. But embrace the idea that God has given you the ability to walk by the Spirit. And, in, and you in particular, as the Anchor Bible Church, I, I can say the Lord's blessed you with a faithful church. There are godly people in your church from whom you can seek counsel. And then as you do that, determine what you would give and stick with it. You know, it doesn't mean you can't recalibrate. You probably will. But as he calls the Corinthians, as he points to Titus, he calls you and me to commit, to stick with it. 
So point number one, the sincere care of Titus. I want you to see his sincere care. But point number two, I want you to see the credibility of these unnamed brothers for accountability. Really what this passage is dealing with is accountability amongst the leadership. It's got to happen. You know, when there's no accountability, then the risk is great. I would say there's even the likelihood that there will be a lack of integrity if there's no accountability. And so Paul spells out for, his, for us what this accountability looks like. Verse 18 says, With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Verse 19 starts with, And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out the act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself. And then down in verse 22, he deals with another brother. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. Who are these men? Nobody knows. I suppose some folks in heaven know. But you don't know, I don't know, no commentator knows. Some have suggested Apollos, perhaps Luke, Tychicus. We don't know, and I would encourage you not really to spend a whole lot of time thinking about it, unless you're just really trying to develop your hermeneutics so that you are accurately arriving at the place where you don't know things that you can't know. That's a good exercise. <laughs> but speculation is often a real problem, especially when someone is, is rigidly dogmatic, which is two words that mean the same thing, uh, about believing something that you can't really know. So, you know, trust the Lord. The point here, and I don't know, we don't even really know why the Lord doesn't give us the names. And a little bit of speculation here is not a bad idea. We can assume that perhaps he didn't want us to know anything about them except the significance of the character issues that are being displayed in this context. So we wouldn't be distracted by anything other than what he wants us to know about them. Let's look back at it, verse 18. With him, right, with Titus, we are sending the brother who is famous. So really, he's using the purest definition of the term famous, well-known. He's well-known for this. All the churches know him for his proclamation of the gospel. So whoever he is, and this is why some commentators and others do speculate, because there are those in the Scripture in this era who are famous for their proclamation of the gospel. We don't know who it is, but we do know that this is a good way to be known. Wouldn't that be great? You know, that guy, if there's one thing I can tell you about that guy, it is that he proclaims the gospel. We ought to be known by that, as this man is known by it. Then in verse 19, and not only that, there's more, not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us. Stop there. I'll come back to the rest later. This is accountability. It's accountability. You know, my good friend, Michael Perkins, uh, Michael Perkins, whatever his name is, um, <laughs> quoted someone. I don't know who he was quoting, but he said, you know, sin loves privacy. You can just think about that for a long time and be strengthened and 
educated spiritually. That's a rich fundamental truth. Sin loves privacy. Integrity loves accountability. Loves it. And it's not just because the person of integrity has nothing to hide. That's not the issue. That would be pride. That would be pride. I love accountability because I've got nothing to hide. The person who loves accountability wants correction because he knows he needs correction. He knows himself well enough to know that he needs help. Paul knew that about himself. Titus knew that about himself. This brother knew that about himself. Verse 22, and with them, speaking of both these brothers, and with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever. Why? This is phenomenal. Because of his great confidence in you, whoever this brother is, and this is one more reason why some speculate as to who it might be, they would say, well, it's probably this person or that person because we know these folks have had interaction with the Corinthians. Paul's point, though, is to say that you had an impact on him, and this is the way it works. The shepherd has an impact on the sheep. Sheep have an impact on the shepherd. The sheep have impact on each other. We all have impact on each other, and that impact ought to be a refining impact. There is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. This man, whoever he was, was all the more spiritually mature. He was more earnest. He was more eager, more sincere, more committed to the care of the Corinthians because of the Corinthians' care for him. And so, in this journey that included Titus, these two men, maybe some others, but at least these men, in this journey to go get money from the Corinthians as a gift for poor Jewish Christians... Paul proclaims to them, this is the system which we've implemented to ensure that it goes well and that it doesn't go wrong. And of course, we really can't address this matter without taking some look at 1 Timothy 3. Keep 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 in your theological back pocket, always. When it comes to the matter of knowing that you're in the right place, knowing that the Lord will bless the work of your hands. There's this fundamental matter of the integrity of the leadership. And too often this comes down to, well, I, I like this one, I don't like this one, you know, preference issues. And there's nothing wrong with thinking through preference issues. That's not wrong. But the fundamental issue is the integrity. Scripture calls it being above reproach. Now, why do leaders, why do elders, why do deacons have to be above reproach? They have to be above reproach in order to be named deacons and elders. But they are above reproach because they are faithful Christians, which, by the way, as those of you in our men's study know well, every Christian is called to be above reproach. My friend Rick Holland has said it this way. There is no higher standard for elders. It is the same standard with higher accountability, meaning more accountability, meaning you can't be an elder if you are not above reproach. There are plenty of people 
There are many people who are above reproach but are not elders. They're not deacons. They're not deaconesses. But the credibility of these unnamed brothers was something that the Corinthians knew. Right? Why? Because they had a relationship. They had interaction. They had regular interaction. In our church, that regular interaction takes place in three places. The worship service, the family group, and the discipleship ministry. And we believe strongly that you need all three. You need vibrant interaction in a discipleship setting that leads to a discipleship relationship or relationships. And you really need that family group interaction where you're praying and singing and studying the Word of God together with other believers. We're not doing any of that perfectly, but I think we're doing it well. Paul says then in 1 Timothy 5, I'm not going to read 1 Timothy 3, but I encourage you, to, as I said, to have that in your theological back pocket so that you're thinking about what those qualifications are. Now, the real issue is being above reproach, but Paul explains what that means. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, he explains it. 1 Peter 5, that ought to come to mind quickly when you think of what a shepherd is. 1 Timothy 5. And Acts 20, specifically verse 28, but really the whole chapter. There are other passages, but that's what ought to come to mind quickly. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, Acts 20, 1 Peter 5. And then this, in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, you know how this works in, in the Pauline epistles. Typically, Paul deals with a lot of theology in the first half or so, and then the second half, he deals more with the practical application of that theology. Now, there's overlap and you know, a mixture of both in, in both halves. But for the most part, he's applying or he's encouraging, he's explaining to you how to apply or what it looks like for sound doctrine to be applied. So he gets to chapter 5 and he deals with what a true widow is. And he deals with what a true elder looks like and what a true elder doesn't look like. So in verse 19, he says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This isn't primarily some sort of protection device against, you know, the us for no more shut the door team who says, you know, we're the guys, you're not the guys, we got it going on, you know, you just tell us what, what you think, maybe we'll address it, maybe we won't. The idea is that 1 Timothy 3 has been applied such that in the event that there's someone in the congregation who addresses something, who brings up a false accusation, it's already been dealt with. There's plenty. Listen, <laughs> there's a wheelbarrow full, lots of them, dump trucks full of stuff that you could point back to in my past and say that's a guy that is not above reproach, and you'd get a sound exclamation point out of me on that. The issue then is, is a man currently above reproach, not yesterday, but over the course of time? Does he show himself to be above reproach? And if he does, those who are above reproach affirm that, and then those who might bring up a false accusation would be ministered to by the others by saying, you know, we've dealt with this. And this happened with me. When we first planted the church, there was a woman who wrote an email to the leaders at Grace Community Church saying, Todd Barnett, really? So we met. I met with her husband, the three elders at large who were graciously, by our choice, by our request, giving us counsel as we moved into the development of our local church. The five of us uh, together, and she, by speakerphone, talked. And I said, listen, thank you. Thank you. I know that you love the church. I know you love Christ. This is not a woman that I had a relationship with. It's a woman who had heard some things about me. 
and all these accusations are coming, and the three men, Chris Hamilton, Lance Quinn, Phil Johnson, were able to say, you know, we know these things. We've dealt with these things. You're, you're wrong about some things. You're right about some things. But this is the old Todd. That, you know, he's a different man now. That's how it ought to work. You know, a man ought to be willing to receive that. I was pleased that she would bring that accusation so that it could be dealt with properly. The problem is when accusations are brought, then they're not dealt with in an upfront, honest manner. So a lot of gossip goes on, a lot of slander goes on. Pretty soon there's a division, there's a fissure in the church, a uh, splintering, you know, spiritual earthquake. Things come apart. So he says, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And I think the godly elder will say, you know what? If you've got a concern about me, I want you to come to me. There's nothing disobedient about receiving an accusation from someone who has a concern. You ought to be able to do that. I invite you to do that. But he says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. So this is the other side of the coin. There really needs to be two or three witnesses who bring a significant accusation. That's what Paul's talking about. But then he says, as for those who persist in sin, the leader, the elder who persists in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. We've had some wonderful men in our church in positions of leadership who have volunteered to do this publicly. We didn't require that. But because of their humility, they've stood before you and said, I need to step down. That is a humble man who will do that, who is pursuing repentance. He's saying, I know this was wrong. I brought it to your attention myself, and I'd like to tell the congregation. It's not required in Scripture. What's required is when the man is hard-hearted and he refuses to repent, then we tell the church we have to. Scripture commands that right here. Verse 21, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Wow. Talk about an area where partiality is a temptation. Because when you've locked arms in ministry with someone for years and years and years, and someone brings an accurate accusation, and it, you know, it comes to be true, it's proven to be true, then the sentimental connection that men have with one another could lead to partiality. Well, you know, he's a good guy. Well, look at all he's done. Well, look at how it'll hurt the church. Paul says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. This is Paul, right? Paul the pastor speaking to young Timothy the pastor saying, Timothy, keep yourself pure and be careful. You know, don't put someone in a position of leadership who's not ready. The point is a new convert. In our text, in verse 23, Paul says, and as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches the glory of Christ, this credibility that they have, these unnamed men, and their credibility to be men who will hold others accountable for how this gift is received and how it is distributed. It is very important in Paul's heart that they remember that these are apostles. Now, these are not apostles of Christ. When you see this term in Scripture, messenger or apostle, if it is the same term, and in this case it is, it's the same word, that's translated as apostles when speaking of the apostles of Jesus. It's important you understand here, it means sent one, it means messenger, but these men about whom he is speaking 
are not those who are apostles of Christ. What's the difference? The difference is that the apostles of Christ, the original 12, and then the 13th, and then the 14th, Paul, those men were literally, directly commissioned by Christ. That's the primary difference. There are no other apostles. There's no apostolic succession. Try to tell that to your Roman Catholic friend, and you'll get an argument if they know anything about Roman Catholicism. But the reality is that when John the Apostle died, the apostles don't serve anymore in an apostolic service, except for those who are sent ones. There's a sense in which you and I are apostles. Now, please be careful how you think of that. <laughs> you know, don't go around saying, hey, I'm Todd said I'm an apostle. You know, people will be confused by that. You're a sent one. You're a messenger. If you're in Christ, you're a messenger. But these men, the idea here is that these men were worthy of the message, and the Corinthians knew it, such that he says about them, if you look at the grammar, which we do, we're committed to the grammar, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Paul could be saying a couple of things here, and I think he's alluding to both. The idea that the glory of Christ is known where? Not just in the messengers, but in the churches. The churches, the glory of Christ, the body of Christ. Where is the glory of Christ displayed? In the body of Christ. In particular, by faithful messengers of the body of Christ who are in Christ. So the glory of Christ on display, and this, by the way, is really the the high point of all things in our lives as Christians. The privilege, as I prayed this morning, to be involved directly in glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ's glory would be known in our conduct. That's why in your so that statement this morning, I pointed out that these are trustworthy Christians that we're looking at this morning. And why are we looking at their lives? So that we will glorify God in our loving generous grace-giving. It ultimately comes down to the glory of Christ. Well, point number three, I also want you to see the eagerness of Paul for the administration of generosity. We've looked at the sincere care of Titus for the Corinthians. We've looked at the credibility of the unnamed brothers for accountability. Now we want to see the eagerness of Paul for the administration of generosity. There in the last part of verse 19, he says, and to show our good will. Let's go back to the beginning of verse 19 so we know what he's saying here. Verse 19, and not only that, but he has been appointed, this brother has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. This is uh, another word that means earnestness, eagerness. It means sincerity. It has to do with care. Again, it's really accountability. That this man, that this brother who is approved by the churches, this is why we call our membership process an affirmation process. That there is an affirmation of those who are pursuing membership. Not just that we think you're a nice person, but we think you're actually a Christian because you have displayed an interest 
in the sin-forgiving death of Jesus Christ and the new life-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ. The music to your ears, right? Those ideas. So that's a member of the body of Christ. And we would say, well, if you're a member of the body of Christ, why not be a member of the Anchor Bible Church? We'll serve him together. This camaraderie that was shared amongst Paul, Titus, these two brothers, and the Corinthians led to the reality that they could testify to the goodwill, the eagerness, the sincerity of Paul in the administration of the gift. The retrieving of the gift and the delivery of the gift. We not only want this to display God's glory, we want it to display our goodwill, our sincere hearts, that our hearts are in the right place, and they can testify to that. He explains further in verse 20 by saying, We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. Interesting, isn't it? Paul's talking about a future gift and he calls it generous. There are a couple of things behind that. One, he knows that the Corinthians are generous. He also knows that they're capable of being generous, but he also wants them to to be generous. So he says this course of action that we're taking, we are doing so for the purpose of not only being blameless, but being known as being blameless. That there would be no question marks about how the gift is being handled. Verse 21, why? For we aim at what is honorable. Not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Now, if you're one of those folks who regularly says, I'm accountable to the Lord, not men. I have a, I have a higher accountability. Just stop it. Because it just really sounds silly to those who understand that accountability to the Lord does not bypass accountability to people. In fact, accountability to the Lord is accountability to people. What would accountability to the Lord look like if people didn't exist? Well, we know what it looked like in Genesis chapter 3. But that's not how things work today. God doesn't come down and have interaction with people the way he did in that era. Or even when Jesus walked the earth. So that accountability comes through people. People who are accountable. Sometime back when we were in the book of Galatians, I did a message called Affirmed Men, Affirming Men. Galatians 2, where Paul talks about receiving the right hand of fellowship, being approved by men. Barnabas was involved in that. Peter was involved in that. Initially, you know this, initially the disciples wanted nothing to do with Paul. Why? Because Paul was not worthy of anyone having anything to do with him. Paul might have killed you. And the disciples feared him, and Barnabas said, Hey, I want you to give him the right hand of fellowship because I know him, and you know me. You trust me, I trust him. And that's how it works. But it's got to be a legitimate process, right? You can't just claim to know stuff that you don't know. You actually have to know people. So, For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And when someone says, well, you know, I don't really answer to any man. I only answer to God. 
that cannot be a true statement in any venue unless they're in heaven. And if they are, you wouldn't have heard them say it. Accountability to God comes through people. And in the church, by design, it comes through Christians. Christians who affirm one another. You know, we encourage one another. We point out where we've seen spiritual growth. We praise God where he's brought reconciliation. We worship him because he restores the ungodly. You know, if, if you can't say to someone, let me tell you about the wretchedness of my life from which the Lord took me and placed me into a love for righteousness, then you need to work on that. That's, you know, what you call your Christian testimony. Not just how God has changed you, that's a big part of it, but the fact that God has changed you by the power of the gospel. Well, number four. Number four. I want you to see the love of the Corinthians for poor Christians. I want you to see the love of the Corinthians for poor Christians. Paul says in our concluding verse, So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Multiple times already, Paul has pointed out this reality about the Corinthians. He said that we testified to Titus about it, and you proved it to be true. We testified to you about Titus, and Titus proved it to be true. This love that is a reality in the hearts of the Corinthians, Paul is calling upon them to prove to be true in how they love poor Christians who are of Jewish nationality. It's a commission. It's a call. It's a command. Give proof. Give proof. That giving proof is primarily rooted in how one handles his finances in this context, in this passage. That giving would be done with joy. That it would be done with sacrifice. As according to need and beyond. As according to what God has afforded you and more. That's how that gift is to be set aside. In 1 Corinthians 16, 2, it's to be set aside once a week. I want to read to you all, or not all, but almost all of Luke chapter 12. Not the whole book, you were wondering. <laughs> Luke chapter 12. To conclude our time together. It says, in the meantime... So many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Isn't that interesting? Especially in light of what he's about to talk about. Nothing that's been hidden will always be hidden. It will eventually be uncovered. Verse 3, Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, just a quick recap commentary. What are we dealing with here? Well, we're dealing with a person of integrity, a person who is committed to fearing God, not fearing man. And so he operates in such a way that he believes that the Holy Spirit will tell him uh, by, by way of reminder of what's in the Word of God to address an accusation. So verse 13 then, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You know, if you haven't been involved in, you are certainly aware of some sibling rivalry that started with the death of their parents and resulted in a fight over the inheritance. It's all too common. Jesus is pointing out that this is what's going on in that guy's heart. What's his parents' money? Verse 16, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, not about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 
If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And you do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. So again, the flow that we've looked at here is a dealing with integrity. That a person would find himself not being as the Pharisees who do what they do to be seen for doing them. That they do what they do out of fear of God, not fear of man. Here you have a passage that addresses the reality that there are those who store up their belongings in barns. Modern translation storage units, garages. And Jesus attacks that directly by pointing to those who don't have barns, those who trust the Lord. And they utilize what the Lord has entrusted to them for the sake of poor Christians. We minister to the poorest country in the world, Malawi. And what you have given, and I know what you will continue to give will be generous, will be more far-reaching than you and I will ever know. Proverbs 3 gives us a very concise picture of this. Proverbs 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. The first fruits of all your produce. This is a principle that runs through Scripture, that your giving to the Lord would be of the first fruits. This was the problem with Cain's gift. It was not of the first fruits as Abel's was, and it angered God. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. 
while we find our barns to be filled. We ought not to tear them down and build larger ones. We ought to empty them and fill the smaller barns of those who need. And if we are unwilling to do that, and the Lord takes it from us, may we not be the hard-hearted man who rejects a reproof. May we not be the hard-hearted, stiff-necked man whom the Lord despises. But may we be the man, the woman, whom the Lord loves with his disciplinary hand and does not despise and acknowledge that God disciplines those whom he loves. I don't know about you, but in my lifetime, I've experienced little and I've experienced much. At times, I think it's better to have little or nothing because you can't mess it up. But it is this trustworthy relationship that exists within the bonds of a legitimate local church that allow for and encourage the kind of giving that results in our high school students receiving $3,600 last night to go to Camp Regen for an eternal investment. But you know this, it's not about the number. It's about the heart. It really is about the heart attitude that's nestled into the same heart attitude with others who love Christ and want to see him glorified. May it be that we would exhibit the sincere care of Titus, that we would also exhibit the credibility of these unnamed brothers, the eagerness of Paul for the administration of a, a generous gift, and the love, the love that the Corinthians had and were called to have for poor Christians. May that be the hallmark of our church. Father, thank you for your word. I trust this morning that you have brought encouragement to the hearts of those who love you and trust you. Lord, we want to be faithful. We don't want to be rich. We don't want to be wealthy. We want to be faithful. We want to be used by you in a way that enables us to be a vehicle by which money comes in and it goes right back out for the sake of those who need it more than we. We pray that you would help us to be that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.